The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 3 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC3. And this is Secret Church 3, Episode 6. We've got a lot of stuff in here. The first half, part one, is the foundational part. It's the part that we really need to make sure we get our arms and hearts, minds around. And then the second half is going to be practical application of that in different areas. And so the more of that we can get to, the better. But just be encouraged. And, and if you don't, even if you don't get all the blanks, and if we don't get to some of the blanks, that that is going to be posted on the Internet. So you can go to the Brook Hills website, Secret Church website, and you can get anything that you miss um, at any point in the evening. So, including if we miss uh, a whole section. So, we have thought about our context. We're going to dive into their context. And the context, the, that which goes with the text that surrounds any text that we study. Consider their context. The way we read and interpret the Bible, we've got to get this, has to honor the way God, and the time in which God chose to communicate. Never forget that Scripture was God's Word to other people before it became God's Word to us. So this book wasn't written just for us. It's written for God's people throughout history. It was God's Word to them before it was God's Word to us. And that means two things. Number one, God cared deeply about them to give them His Word. That's one of those things. I know I've mentioned the Middle East a couple of different times. It's just my most recent time out of the country. And it was so, so awesome being in a couple of those countries where so much Old Testament history has taken place and to remember that this is the place that God chose to reveal himself in that time period. And it was just a picture of of God's love for that region of the world. Not just about them though. God cares deeply about us and he wants us to see the meaning of this word that he has originally revealed to them. There's all kinds of different facets of context. First, literary context. Literary context. And the first part of that is, and this is just thinking about literature, genre. And a genre is basically different genres of literature or different kinds of biblical texts. When you read through this book, you'll find all kinds of different genres. You'll find stories. You'll find speeches. You'll find poetry. You will find prophetic oracles. You will find all kinds of different forms of literature. And what we've got in this one book are a multiplicity of forms. And what we need to think about here when it comes to genres, we need to know the rules involved with different genres. And I say rules, I want you to picture it like this. You got basketball and you got football. If you try to play basketball with the rules of football, it's not going to work out very well. Things are not going to go well when one person comes in and thinks it's the rules of football at work and everybody else is dribbling around a basketball. That's not going to, or the same thing, basketball, trying to apply it to football. Almost looking at different genres like different games. And each one of them has different rules, so to speak. And we, we've got practical examples of this. In, a, in, a, in one day this past week, you might have read a newspaper, looked up a number in a phone book, ordered from a menu, read a poem, read a letter, waded through instructions on how to build something, or meditated on a devotional book. Now, those are all different genres. And obviously, you're not going to read a phone book the same way you read a love letter. And you're not going to order off and read a menu the same way you read a newspaper. 
These things are, are going to be different. And this is the danger. Just as a side note, this is the possible, possible potential danger with topical preaching and topical study of the Bible that just kind of jumps around from this text to this text. It's like bringing something from a menu and something from a love letter and something from a phone book all together and trying to figure out how they all relate to each other. That's very difficult to do. It doesn't mean it can't be done, but it's difficult to do. You're not going to study Galatians and Song of Solomon the same. You're not going to study those books the same. They have different rules, so to speak, that help us to understand what they mean. You're not going to take the parables and do exhaustive word studies like you might do in the book of Galatians with the parable of the Good Samaritan. So we're going to use different different rules with different types of genres. What you've got and what we're going to talk about in the second half is these types of genres. And these are pretty general, but in Old Testament you've got narrative, which is stories, law, poetry, the prophets, and wisdom. And they, don't, they overlap some. Sometimes they overlap. But those are the main genres. In the New Testament, you've got the letters. You've got gospels, which includes parables, but are kind of a different breed in and of themselves. In the book of Acts, and then you've got Revelation, which all to itself is a genre. So you've got these different genres that you've got to take into account. Second, literary context is the grammar. Grammar, individual words, phrases, clauses, all just like we've talked about. Just like we've talked about the first part of our time together tonight. All those affect the meaning. And then the surroundings. We've got to realize that the Bible is not just a bunch of parts that exist separate from one another. They're a bunch of parts that come together in a whole. And now you've got some concentric circles there in your notes. What you've got is in the inner circle, you've got the text you're studying. And maybe a verse, maybe a paragraph, maybe a chapter. So you've got that text. And then you've got the immediate context in which it's found. Then beyond that, you've got a whole segment that many times they're contained in. Then you've got the rest of that Bible book that it's contained in. You've got the rest of the Bible. And so, and this is why I study the Bible, it's going to take time, i.e. years, to really, really dive into some of the depths of the Word because we're going to begin to learn more about these different circles that are going to help us to understand the Word. And all of those circles are key. You look at a text like Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. How many times have we heard it quoted, somebody comes up on stage and say, in church, well, wherever two or three are gathered, there I am with them. So praise God, He's with us. And that's good. Yes, God is with us. But the only problem is, poor guy over here who's thinking, well, I was having a quiet time this morning by myself. Did that mean God wasn't with me then? What what do you mean two or three are gathered? And what we've done is we've taken that passage, that verse, we've ripped it out of its context. You go back to that passage, and what you'll find is Jesus is talking about conflict in the church and conflict among brothers and going to your brother and addressing him, basically a church discipline picture. And it's a promise that Jesus gives that when the church goes through very difficult times and when, goes through, when the church goes through conflict, I want to remind you that right when you gather together, I, I want to remind you that I'm with you in the middle of conflict. Now, that's an incredible verse, but if we rip it out of its context, we miss the point. Revelation 3, 20 and 21, I, I think I left off verse 20 accidentally. But remember this is, this is God speaking to the church at Laodicea and says, Here I am, I stand at the, nor- at the door and knock. If anyone opens it up, I will come to eat with him and he with me. And then you've got verse 21 that's listed there. And many times we use that as to say, I want to invite you to come to Christ. Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking. The only problem is that rips that verse out of its context. The Bible's actually speaking to the church there. And it's a picture of Jesus saying to the church, I'm outside this picture. 
standing at the door and knocking, open the door and let's, let's experience the unity that was designed for the church. We've got to know those different facets of context, literary context. Then second, historical, cultural context. Remember we talked about how we bring our culture to the table. Well, they bring their culture to the table. The historical, cultural context. If our interpretation of the Bible is going to be valid, it's got to take into account the history, the culture of that day. We've got to know that. This is why we did Old Testament secret church and New Testament secret church before this secret church. Because understanding the background of each of those books is key for understanding how to interpret those books. So they go together. We've got to get to know the author. Get to know the author. Use your notes from Old Testament or New Testament secret church. When was Hosea writing? What's the background behind that? You can tell from the tone of Galatians, I think we've mentioned it a couple times, what's going on in the situation there from Paul. What kind of relationship did Jonah have with the Ninevites? Why does Luke not include this or that in his story in the book of Acts? Why does he not, why does he not tell us exactly what happened to Luke or what happened to Paul at the end? Why does he kind of leave it hanging there? Well, we've got to understand what Luke is doing as an author in order to answer those questions. Get to know the author. And what we're going to do, I've got John 21, 24 listed there. I want us to take John 4, John chapter 4 as an example here, which is Jesus' conversation. I was trying to use one that's familiar to many of us. Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. And I want us to think about the historical cultural context that's needed there. Well, we need to know who wrote this book. That's why I've got John 21, 24 listed there. This is the disciple who testifies to these things, who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. We've got John who wrote this. Now, we get to know the author second. Get to know the audience. The audience. Biblical books. Every biblical book is written to specific people for a specific purpose. When you read the Gospel of Mark, Mark is writing to a bunch of believers who are facing persecution. So that affects the way we interpret the book of Mark. You get to John 20, 31. This is a a passage we read earlier. Why did he write this book? He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and find life in his name. So we got the author and the audience. Then get to know the geographic conditions. When you read John 4, 3 through 4, and it says, When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. At that point, you see this geographic stuff coming on. You go and you look at a map and you see this path from uh, leaving Judea and going back to Galilee. And the most common path for Jewish people to take in that day because of the deep hatred for Samaritans was to go around Samaria. But John 4.4 says Jesus had to go through Samaria. It's a picture of Jesus going really, in a sense, outside of the norm because he was pursuing the people that no one else cared about, that everyone else ignored. That's the picture we've got, geographically even. Get to know the social conditions. John 4, 7, when we we read, when a Samaritan woman came to draw, draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Socially, this is way out of bounds. Man talking to a woman in public, not only man talking to a woman, but a Jew talking to a Samaritan. This is way out of bounds socially. We don't feel that unless we know the historical cultural context there. Get to know the religious conditions. When the Samaritan woman says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? (coughs) Excuse me, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. 
And you know the religious divide that goes all the way back to the, very, to the Old Testament and this divide where the Samaritans accept the first five books of the Old Testament but kind of check out after that and the Jewish people didn't and the divide that's there as a result of that. We need to know the religious conditions in John 4. Get to know the economic conditions. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? We need to know that economically, this woman would have to come out repeatedly to this well to get water. Most of the time, you would come out with some with others, but she's coming out alone, which says something about her. There's economic conditions at work here, political conditions. At the end of their conversation, the woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. They were looking for a political Messiah. That was the picture. And it helps to understand the expectations of a Messiah for how Jesus is being revealed in the Gospels. All those different facets of context. You see how in just one, one passage you see geography, history, politics, economics. This is where a Bible handbook is really helpful. But if we don't have that, then we need to really look for clues that, that help us understand the different divides there are, the different issues that are being raised. We got literary context, historical, cultural context, and then the theological context. Every passage we study in Scripture fits into the overall picture of Scripture. This is another reason why we did Old Testament and New Testament secret church first. Each of those times we did Old Testament and New Testament, the second half of those evenings, we walked through a theological overview to see, how, see what was going on in the Old Testament. If you were here, you know we, we walked through the whole patterns that were being developed in the Old Testament, the New Testament, how the New Testament carried those through. And so take that picture and think about where each passage we're studying fits into those pictures. I love this quote from J.I. Packer. He said, the Bible appears like a symphony orchestra with the Holy Ghost as its Toscanini was each, with each each instrument has been brought willingly, spontaneously, creatively to play his notes just as the great conductor desired, though none of them could ever hear the music as a whole. The point of each part only becomes fully clear when seen in relation to all the rest. We don't read different texts in isolation from one another. We read them in their theological context, how they fit into the overall message of the Bible. Those different contexts that they bring, we bring to the table. We need to be aware of We summarize it this way. Basic principles for Bible interpretation. Number one, remember that context rules. Context rules. Never take a scripture out of context to make it say something that you think it would be good for it to say. That is an abuse of the Bible. And sometimes we do it because we want it to speak to a certain situation. We want it to say something to encourage somebody else. But we don't help people by misinterpreting Scripture to try to help their situation. That does not help people. Remember that context rules. The ultimate author of God is God, and we don't need to add to his meaning. Second, always seek the full counsel of the Word of God. We've seen how the more we study Scripture, the more we'll understand the whole picture. And we'll more, understand, more easily understand how this fits into the whole picture. And when we face difficult texts, texts that are difficult to interpret, to understand, it's going to help us to have an overall picture so that we don't start twisting this and twisting this and all of a sudden this whole picture gets jumbled. Always seek the full counsel of the Word of God. Third, remember that Scripture will never contradict Scripture. 
Scripture will never contradict Scripture. Compare Scripture with Scripture. Use cross-references. This is a big part of Bible study. If your Bible does have little notes, little letters, cross-references that are, that are in your Bible, and I'm guessing most of Bibles that are represented in this room do, use those cross-references. You're studying verses and you see a word that sticks out. It'll often have a, a little letter there with a verse of where else Paul has used that word. And it'll help you. Cross-references are big. So compare Scripture with Scripture. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. So when you're struggling, let other parts of Scripture help you understand that. Now, Dave, you said Scripture will never contradict Scripture. But when I look in Scripture, I see the responsibility of man talked about. And I see the sovereignty of God talked about. How do these two go together? This is that point where we realize there is tension and mystery to the Word of God. There's tension and mystery to it. It doesn't mean they contradict, but it does mean we study them as the text that they have. And not to be frustrated with the fact that sometimes it doesn't all just become crystal clear together. There is a bit of mystery to that. I think some, sometimes people get frustrated if I look at them and say, you know, I know I'm the pastor, but I can't explain the whole Bible to you. I hope that's not discouraging to you. I hope it's not discouraging that someone with a finite mind would not be able to understand completely an infinite mind. That's, let's not get too downhearted about, us, about that. And it leads to this next thing. Avoid basing your doctrine on an obscure passage of Scripture. Avoid basing your doctrine on an obscure passage of Scripture. There's some texts that we come to and they just don't seem to add up. They don't seem to make sense and we can't figure it out. We can get tied up in knots. I love this verse from 2 Peter 3. This is what Peter said about Paul's writings. Listen to what Peter himself, Peter the Apostle, said about Paul's writings. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters, letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. I'm, I find encouragement that Peter had a hard time with some of the things that Paul wrote. So find encouragement of that. It's okay. Don't twist them. But no, some of them are hard to understand. Find confidence, though, in the fact that the things that God wants us to understand most, he has made more than clear. The things God wants us to understand most, he has made very clear. Interpret Scripture plainly. And what I mean by this is avoiding that superficial or avoiding that, that spiritual meaning, trying to find, okay, what's the deep, deep meaning here that's even farther beyond what it looks like on the front, on the face of it. Interpret Scripture plainly. Now, here's the deal. There are some times when the Bible does use figurative language or the Bible is interpreting with a is showing us something that's a meaning that's a lot deeper than the text may show. Here's some guidelines, and I'm just going to run through these. But guidelines that you can go back to when you start to think, is there a deeper meaning here? Use these guidelines. Number one, use the literal sense unless there's a good reason not to. Literal, plain sense of Scripture, unless there's a good reason not to. Use, it figurally, use a figurative interpretation when the passage tells you to do so. If you remember the text we looked at about the slave woman and the free woman, it said, look at this figuratively. That's a good sign to look at it figuratively. <laughs> so if it says do it, then do it. Third, use the figurative sense if the expression is an obvious figure of speech. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. Okay? That's an obvious figure of speech. Use the figurative sense if a literal interpretation goes contrary to the context of the passage, the context of the book, or the purpose of the author. So we want, we want to see the unity here. 
Use the figurative sense if a literal interpretation involves a contradiction of other scripture. That's somewhat similar to that. And then finally, use a figurative interpretation if a literal meaning is impossible, absurd, or immoral. So just remember that. If it's impossible, absurd, or immoral for that to be the case, then obviously there's a figurative sense intended. That's what I mean by interpret scripture plainly. Finally, finally, conclude the process of interpretation by describing the author's intended meaning in the passage. Summarize the text. And what I want to encourage you to do, and this is a part of what's on this sheet right here, the major question question you want to ask is, what's the point? What's the point? When you've done all this observation, it says at the bottom of this sheet, this half sheet, taking into account literary, historical, cultural, and theological context, which we just talked about, identify in one or two sentences the primary meaning of this text for its original readers. What's, what's the point? In one or two sentences, you want to sum up the point. Whether it's a verse, a passage, or a longer segment of Scripture, what's the point? You want to be able to lay that out in a verse or two at the bottom of this page. Be responsible with this. Remember, it's not what does the text mean for me. It's what does the text mean. What did it mean to its original readers? Be concise. You don't, you don't have to make this more difficult than it is. Be simple and be specific. Be specific. Don't write down, as you're coming to a conclusion of studying a passage, don't write down, God is good. <laughs> he is. He is very good. But, but write down, Paul said this to these people to show that God is good. You want to you be specific in how you, you write that down. And then the final step when interpreting Scripture is to check your conclusions by leaning on the church. By leaning on the church. And here's what I mean by that. Be very wary if you study a passage of Scripture and you find an interpretation of that Scripture that nobody else in 2,000 years has found. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is not still speaking to people. However, I'm guessing that you're not going to come on the scene and I'm not going to come on the scene. And finally, somebody is here who the Holy Spirit can actually reveal this truth he's been waiting to reveal to, to you. It's not the way it works. So if you find something that nobody else, you look at, if you were to look at a commentary or this or that, nobody else in the world has come up with this, then at least be wary of that, okay? At least move very cautiously from that, that point. Interpretation and action. If you were to come to Acts 1.8, and we remember we've talked about, okay, you'd have a list full of things. You'd have stuff written all over this page when it comes to observing Acts 1.8, and you come to, the conclu- come to the interpretation part. What does it mean? You might write down here a sentence, and I'm going to give you a sentence that might be similar. You've got some blank space there. And you don't necessarily have to write down these exact words, but remember, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Maybe the point, if you were to say, okay, what's the point of Acts 1.8? Jesus encouraged his disciples by promising them he would send the Holy Spirit to, to enable them to take the gospel to the whole world. That's kind of the point. Jesus encouraged his disciples by promising them he would send, Jesus, send the Holy Spirit to enable them to take the gospel to the whole world. That's, that's the point. When you bring it down to it, okay, you've got scribble all over here of what you've observed. Then you've got to summarize it. Okay, what, what does it mean? What's the point? Jesus encouraged his disciples by promising them he would send the Holy Spirit to enable them to take the gospel to the whole world. Okay, 
That's the first two parts of the front of the sheet. Now, again, I'm using this as an illustration. And if you want to walk away from tonight and use this as a Bible study guide, then I want you to have something practical like that. But maybe you don't use this. Maybe you use something like that or you develop or adapt this. You do whatever works best for how you can best accomplish this. But then you would turn over. And we've got two steps on the back. Bring it back home and apply it in your home. So let's think about bring it back home. How does it relate? This is the shortest step, but in some ways it's the most challenging step. Remember, this is how the text travels. We're sitting on the plane now. We've been in here in Acts chapter 1. We've observed all these things in Acts 1. We've figured out what the point was for the original readers. Now we're getting on the plane and thinking, okay, how does this travel to the 21st century? Bring it back home. How does it relate? And the goal here is to identify the timeless truth. Not, not just truth, maybe truths. Maybe there's a couple of different truths. But you're looking for the truths, principles that are in this passage that are timeless, that travel across cultures. This is the theological principle that applies to all people of all times. Now, we're still not to application. We're going to get there in just a minute. But we're thinking through a timeless truth, all right? We've got this picture. Jesus encouraged his disciples to, to wait for the Holy Spirit, to enable them to take the gospel to the whole earth. Now... Let's think through some timeless truths. And here's the guidelines, the timeless truths, five characteristics of it when you think about a timeless truth. Number one, the timeless truth is biblical. Hopefully that goes without saying, but it should be reflected in the text. And not just in that text. Second, the timeless truth is compatible with the rest of Scripture. Compatible. It's biblical and compatible. In other words, a truth in Acts 1-8 that is timeless should not contradict a truth in Nehemiah 1. They wouldn't contradict each other. If they would, then one of them wouldn't be truth. Okay? The timeless truth is biblical. Second, compatible with the rest of Scripture. Third, the timeless truth is eternal. That's why it's called timeless. It is not tied to a specific situation. This is not just what was going on in Acts. This is what happens to all people of all time. Eternal. Fourth, the timeless truth is cross-cultural. This is where we separate what's going on in this specific cultural context to what the truth is behind how that affects all cultures. It's traveling across the ocean, cross-cultural. And fifth, the timeless truth is applicable. It's applicable in Acts 1-8 and it's applicable in the 21st century. It's applicable here and there. Timeless truth, biblical, compatible, eternal, cross-cultural, and applicable. Now, let me give you some examples. What do I mean by that? What are the timeless truths in Acts 1.8? I've, I've got four listed here. Really sum up. Okay, if you were to back away from Acts 1.8, what are some timeless truths that are here? One timeless truth. The Holy Spirit comes upon the people of God personally. The Holy Spirit comes upon the people of God personally. Okay? Maybe a second one. The effect or the result of the Holy Spirit in believers' lives is witness to Christ. The effect of the Holy Spirit in believers' lives is witness to Christ. I know it's tough to write all this down as you think through it, but I, just, I want you to get the gist. If you can get it all written down, that's great, but get the gist. Maybe a third one. The Holy Spirit empowers followers of Christ. That's just a timeless truth. The Holy Spirit empowers Christ followers. And maybe, maybe a fourth one. The Holy Spirit wants the world for Christ. The Holy Spirit wants the world for Christ. It's a timeless truth. 
It was there in Acts 1, and it's here tonight. The Holy Spirit wants the world for Christ. The Holy Spirit empowers Christ's followers. The effect or result of the Holy Spirit in believers' lives is witness to Christ. Anybody who has the Holy Spirit, the effect of the Holy Spirit in us is witness to Christ. The Holy Spirit comes upon the people of God personally. These are timeless truths that applied in the first century, second century, third century, all the way to the 21st century. Biblical, compatible, eternal, cross-cultural, and applicable. Okay, now based on those timeless truths, and it's key, what, what you've got on the back of, this, back of this sheet, it says identify the timeless truth that relate to the original readers and to us. Now, on here you've got, if studying an Old Testament passage filters theological principles to the New Testament. We'll talk about that later in just a little while. The last step we make then is apply it in your home. Now we're to application. We haven't started there. We're ending there. Apply it in your home. Now, I want us to think about the differences between interpreting the Bible and applying the Bible. What are the differences here? Interpretation focuses on meaning. What does the text mean? Application focuses on focuses on action. What am I going to do as a result of what the text means? Application focuses on action. Interpretation has a singular meaning. Remember, we're looking for what the Holy Spirit means in a text. And some of you, when I said, don't say what does the passage mean to me, some of you thought, well, doesn't it mean different things to each one of us? No, it means this, but then it applies in different ways to many of us. So interpretation, fo- interpretation focuses on a singular meaning. Application involves multiple actions, multiple actions, different specific scenarios where this text applies. Interpretation is the same for all Christians. Application is different for specific life situations. These are the differences between interpretation and application. Interpretation involves getting into the Word. Application involves the Word getting into us. That's how the Word's going to play out in us. Finally, interpretation asks, this goes back to that question, interpretation asks, what does this text mean? Question mark. Application asks, how does this meaning apply to my life? Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.